the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program, as you know, dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever is on your heart. You need only to call us. You can dial 210-340-9585, 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by mailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit one button. Call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else is hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Well, it's Tuesday, so we don't have a bunch of stuff to talk about. So let's get right to questions while we await your your phone calls. At least I hope you're going to call today. The first one is from Laura. And she says, why didn't God want Adam and Eve to know both good and evil? Knowledge is power. Did God want them to be powerless? Um, Laura, imagine, and this is hard for us. We live thousands of years after that moment when everything was perfect. Imagine living in a place where there's only good. I mean, think about that for a second. And we call that heaven, actually. That's going to be the case in heaven. But, but... Would you want the knowledge of evil in heaven as well? God created a perfect environment for Adam and Eve. He actually walked with them in the cool of the garden. We can't even begin to understand the relationship they had pre-fall. We also don't know how long they were in the garden uh, before the fall. So um, God gave them everything and everything was perfect. Now, they needed a choice, so God gave them a choice. God doesn't force anybody to love him. He doesn't force anybody to obey him. He gave them a choice. And he did that by putting a tree with the knowledge of good and evil. He told him, everything else is yours. 
just this one tree, and that was the one tree that they couldn't stay away from. Now, to answer your question directly, how did things turn out when they knew about evil? You know, we live in a world that exalts knowledge and information. Um, You don't say how old you are, Laura. You don't say if you're married or you have kids. But in this information age, there's all kinds of evil trees on that information highway. If you've got children, let's say you've got boys, children, do you want them to know that there's pornography on the internet? You want them exposed to it? That's not power. That's just the power to destroy. If you've got daughters, do you want them to know and be accessible to evil men who are out there who want to do harm, harmful things? Wouldn't you rather they grow up knowing only good? Now that ship is sailed. We can't go back there. But God wasn't withholding anything from them. He was just letting them know that if you do this, it'll go well with you. If you do this, then it's going to be bad for you. You don't need to know about that. And they chose the wrong thing. So this has nothing to do with power. Um, often people say, well, well, God is against knowledge. He's not. God simply doesn't want us to destroy ourselves. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. And as our federal heads, they destroyed everything for the rest of us as well. So it's a a strange question, Laura. Um, As for me, I I wish I didn't know the evil that I've been made aware of in this world. So that's the best I can do with that one, Laura. I just, I can't imagine the motive for even asking a question like this. It's its um, a much better world. We're focused on that which is good and that which is from God. Laura, if that's not enough information for you, you can write back. I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss, really, even as to the mindset to get asked that kind of question. Here is an anonymous question. It says, Pastor on the pastor in my church has stopped teaching the Bible. I asked another pastor why, and he said that no one dares confront the pastor. What action should I take to call the pastor out? Uh, Anonymous, you shouldn't take any actions to call the pastor out. You're, You're not the one responsible for that flock. You're not the one who's going to stand before God and give account of your ministry. He is. So here's what you do. You go to your pastor and you say, I'm leaving this church. I'm leaving it because you stopped teaching the Bible. You tell him that you asked another pastor why, and you said that no one dares confront you. And I don't want to be in a church like that. I mean, that's the action you should take. We've got to get over this whole, this human thing that we have of, i got to fix every wrong. We can't. You've got to protect your walk with the Lord. And if there's a lot of people as discerning as you, and they're going to start leaving the church because the Bible is no longer being taught, then believe me, God will take care of his own. So don't call him out. Just find another church where you can hear the word, where you can learn from the word, where you can serve the body of Christ, where your gifts are going to be used, and then leave that other pastor to the Lord. He's quite capable of dealing with him. We don't have to fix all the wrongs. We can't. Just protect you. And if you have a family, protect your family. 
get him to another church. We don't need to take a stand and fight. Do what's best for your family, for you, and your walk with the Lord. Now, spinning a little bit off the question, but on that same line, I I can't imagine what pastors do that don't just teach the Bible. You know, we finished in one verse last Sunday, and when we come back together this coming Sunday, we're going to pick up in the next verse. I don't have to come up with a three-point sermon. I don't have to come up with a topical message. I don't have to try to find out what the hot issues of the day are and, and issues that people care about. I just teach the Bible. And as I teach the Bible, the Holy Spirit moves. So let me say this to all of you who are in churches where the Bible is not being taught. I don't mean preached. I don't mean a topical message where they quote scriptures. I'm talking about a church where the Bible is taught, where you're being fed. What in the world are you doing there? Now, there's a lot of different styles. I get questions about other pastors on this program from time to time. And and I had a question recently about what pastors do I recommend. And I'll look at a pastor like uh, Charles Stanley. Uh, he does things completely different than I do. But when he's teaching on a topic, he's teaching the Bible about that passage of Scripture. And people are getting fed and they're growing. Um, uh, Paul Shepard is, is, a, is a pastor who is completely different than me. Better, funnier, smarter. And he does things completely different, but he teaches the Bible. Um there are others. Tony Evans. I like Tony Evans. And none of them do it the way I do. I'm not advocating that, that this is the only right way to do it. But if you're not feeding your people, then your people need to go find a shepherd that will feed them. So Anonymous, that's the only action that you ought to take. And that's the action of finding a church that's going to teach the Bible and prepare you for the work that God has called you to do. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Randy says, um, Christians seem to argue all the time about end times beliefs, don't we? Uh, that's me, by the way. He says, why does it matter when Jesus is coming, only that he is coming? Um, you, you know, Randy, in, in, in a small way, you're right. We, we need to live our lives like Jesus coming any instant. And he is coming. We have to believe that he's coming again. But I think the timing is important. You see, the first century church, the most powerful church in the history of the world, the first century church believed that Jesus could come at any moment, and it changed the world because it changed the people. If I believe, and Jesus told a parable about this, if if I believe that, that Jesus isn't coming soon, he's going to delay his coming, who cares when he's coming, uh, th- then I'm not going to be ready when he does come. I know there's a whole lot of rapture fatigue out there, uh, but but that's nothing new. That was true when Peter wrote about it in the first century church while he was still alive. I know some of you say, where is this coming that you talk about? But then he said this. He said, God isn't slack or slow concerning his promise. 
He's patient, unwilling, and he should perish. What he's saying is that we should seize the opportunity, knowing that he's coming at any moment, we should seize the opportunity to tell people about Jesus. We should do what Jesus told us to go out and make disciples of, of people everywhere, teaching them to obey his commandments. And so that's what we ought to be doing. And and frankly, Randy, if we believe Jesus isn't coming soon, then we're not going to do that. There's going to be so, no sense of urgency at all. So it matters a great deal. The Apostle Paul lived every day in his life as though he was going to see Jesus that day. And remember, he'd been to heaven. He, he knew the glory that was waiting him. And he, he just made the most of every opportunity. He calls it in the letter to the Romans, redeeming the time. So that's what we ought to do. That's why it matters. And Jesus said, a wicked, lazy servant says, my master delays is coming. Now, regarding arguing, if you've been listening to this program, Randy, and you've sent some questions in before, um, you know, I don't like to argue. I don't think Christians ought to argue. I think it compromises our witness. But there are some things that are important enough to stand for, and this is one of them. Jesus is coming. He can come at any moment. And our responsibility is to make sure people are ready. i tell a very quick story. There's nobody holding on the line. We had a young woman who got saved many, many years ago, and um, she was going back home on a vacation. And she called Paula, and she was telling her that her family wanted to go to a bar and hang out and have some fun. And, and all she could think about was, well, I don't want Jesus to come back and find me in a bar. See, that was a girl who believed Jesus was coming back and it changed the choices that she made, the decisions that she made. And I hope that's true for all of us. So, Randy, um, it matters a great deal. Um, Jesus is coming. Nothing else has to happen before he comes. And, and we need to be ready. And if he comes today, I'm ready. I'm eager and I'm excited. But if I wake up tomorrow morning and I'm still here, well, then there's a whole new day of work to do. And that's, I think, where our focus needs to be. We need to understand the urgency of the time. You know, Randy, I am starting tomorrow night in the prophecy of Daniel. Uh, on Friday nights, we're currently in the book of Revelation. We are still in, actually, I'm going to be starting in chapter 3 the next time I'm in it. Uh, but, but, but those are the two books that deal within times prophecy. And uh, we're going to see the urgency of the hour from heaven's perspective. We're going to see that the people in Revelation who were left behind after the fourth chapter in the, in the, the book of Revelation, we're going to see that those people who are left behind are going to endure the, the, the worst time by far that the world has ever seen. Whatever tragedies that you've seen in this world, multiply them times a billion, and that's what the Great Tribulation is going to be like. And we've got to care about the people Jesus loves. And the way we do that is to tell them that they don't have to be here. So what you believe about eschatology, the study of end times, whatever you believe, it affects directly the urgency with which you live your life. And Randy, if you can walk by somebody who's hurting and not 
want to share Jesus with them, then you need to stoke that sense of urgency. So, Randy, I hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. Raymond says, uh, will we really be responsible to God for every word we speak? Um, that's what the Bible says. For, for every idle word, the worthless words, not worthy words, but the uh, idle words, Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 36, um, we're going to give account. Now think about that for a moment. How are you going to describe to Jesus? Now go back to Randy's question. You talked about arguing. Um, you're going to give account for the arguments that you engaged in. Raymond, think for a moment about a husband and wife arguing. One flesh, I'm talking Christian couples here, committed to serving God, and they're arguing over silly stuff. How would you explain that to Jesus? I'd explain to Jesus if you gossip about somebody for that, that, that he died for. If you argue, just argue. And I rest my case. That's what social media is all about. How are we going to explain that to Jesus? So, Randy, we can't, or Raymond, I'm sorry, we can't soften that at all. Uh, we are responsible, accountable for every idle word that we speak. And I think when that happens, spreading stories, whatever it is, Imagine the, the the sadness of losing rewards in heaven because of those things. It doesn't mean that we're not going to be saved. It doesn't mean we're going to lose our salvation. But remember, judgment begins at the house of God, and we who belong to him are accountable to him to act as though we really love him, as though we really belong to him. I've said to our church, and I said it only half tongue in cheek, but I said, you know, I think God has a sense of humor. I think the people that you speak ill toward or speak ill of, uh, the people that you argue with, I think you're going to be stationed with them somewhere in eternity. Can you imagine? And we're going to see just how silly it is to speak badly about people that we're going to spend forever in heaven with. One of the reasons, Raymond, that we speak ill of people is because we value our own opinions too highly. And Paul says that we ought not to think of ourselves highly. That's not humility, it's just the opposite. So yeah, I can't soften what Jesus said. We will be held accountable for every idle word. That's pretty heavy if you think about it. I remember my mom or dad or some of my aunts and uncles catching me in lies. And they would say, okay, explain this. Why did you? And all I could do is stumble and stammer. How much more when we stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the presence of pure holiness? What excuses are we going to give for the things that we say? The, the ugly words that come out of our mouth. The language on... Sunday, I'm going to be ending 1 Corinthians 12 and just getting into 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And I want you to know that 1 Corinthians 13 is going to break us apart, break us down. Because the standard, it's a standard that we were loved with by the Lord. That's a standard that we're held accountable to. And any word not given in love is an idle word and we're going to be 
held accountable. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? Oliver says, Please explain to me how God could have forsaken his son. Loving fathers don't do that. Um, Oliver, I, I think the easiest way, and, and, and clearly, I, I think you're, you're not a believer, um, the short answer is that God valued you more than he valued his son's own life at that moment. God had a choice to make. Remember, Jesus asked him three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, is there any way this cup can pass for me? And three times the answer came no. Three times Jesus prayed, nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. But God made a choice. And to me, the most mysterious Bible verse of all is it pleased God the Father to crush his son. And the only way we can we can understand that, Oliver, is it pleased him because what he got back was worth to him so much more than he gave. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But it pleased God to crush that son, the perfect son of God, because God considered you more valuable. Matthew chapter 13, verse 45 uh, the parable of the pearl of great price. It says, when he found one pearl of great price, he sold everything he had so he could go buy that pearl. Well, God the Father sold everything he had so he could buy the pearl that is Oliver and the pearl that's Ron. So that's how he could do it. Value. You're right, in this world, in the natural, loving fathers don't do those kinds of things. But that's why this gift from heaven matters so deeply. Because God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And I always, in my Bible, all have my name there. Christ died for Ron. And in the process, his family grew. And can I say one other thing? Just logically, Oliver, Jesus came to die. He came to do his Father's will. And as Jesus was becoming sin, I mean, he took on your sin. Think of the, the, the most evil thing you've ever done, the, 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 the filthiest thing you've ever done. Jesus became that sin so he could wash you from being guilty of that sin. That's staggering. And he did it because he considered that you were worth it. So this is a loving father who sacrificed his son for you and for me. Oliver, I hope you'll think about that and maybe surrender your heart to Jesus Christ. Open your Bible. Read it. Let the Spirit of God come in you. That's what happens when you get saved. And then when... The Spirit comes in you, then let Him teach you about the heart of God for you. Pretty amazing. Here's a question from Thomas. Thomas, I'll tell you in advance, I don't have the answer for this. Uh, how long were Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall? We don't know. I have absolutely no idea. We're not told. Um, you know, the story reads one chapter to the next, like it happens pretty quickly. Uh, but, but the reality is they could have been there for a hundred years. They could have been there for a hundred hours in, in any place in between. We don't know. Um, but, but they were there. 
I, I often think uh, that, that when they were sent out of the garden and an angel, a cherub, was there to guard the tree of life, preventing them from living in their sin for eternity. Um, I often think that after having Cain and Abel, how many times, again, we don't know how old Cain and Abel were. You know, they were born uh, as infant, not like Adam and Eve. We don't know what they stage of development they were in when they were created. Um, I like to think that as a, as a father who would tell his kids about God, that he would make at least a yearly trip to the edge of the garden as far as they could go in just to remind their sons that this is where Dad, your mother, used to live before we blew it. God was good. He was beautiful. They would have described the glory of God. They would have described what it was like walking with him and speaking with him and hearing him clearly. I mean, we can't imagine what it was like to have the glory cover our nakedness. We, we just That's impossible for everybody since Adam and Eve. But they really... I'm sure would talk to their boys about it. Later they would do the same thing with Seth. That's what a father does. A loving father tells his kids so they can learn from his mistakes. Hey, the phones are quiet. We'd love your calls and questions. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday show, 340-9585. Here is a question from Kirby from our email inbox. Pastor Ron, I know that you're not a fan of Facebook. Let me interrupt Kirby's question for a minute. That's the understatement of the decade. I hate Facebook and social media. And this question will show you why. Pastor Ron, I know that you're not a fan of Facebook, but I wanted to hear your take on an article that came out this week about Facebook working directly with religious groups, exploring how churches can go farther on Facebook. And there are a number of church groups and denominations that are embracing that social platform. One part of the article that really stood out to me is the emphasis on money. For example, they're looking at $9.99 per month charge to receive exclusive content. What would that even look like? And in parentheses, uh, Kirby says, I hate to imagine. It makes me think of the Corinthian church at communion where the rich are, are while the poor looked on in hunger. Another one would be that you could give donations live. Yikes. Talk about boasting in front of everybody. Your thoughts, please, respectfully, Kirby. Kirby, um, I, believe me, I would blow up social media if, if it was up to me. 
I cannot imagine. Yeah, and, and Kirby, you've heard of our church. We don't charge for anything. I can't imagine charging for exclusive con- content. What would you say? Okay, we've got a website for those who don't pay and a website for those who do pay. Or we've got a website and, and a Facebook Live page where you can get exclusive comment. Like we're holding something back for the rest of the church body. I mean, that makes no sense to me. And I, I, I you know, I really hate it when um, churches take something so pure and so simple and get creative with it and decide that this could be a revenue stream. And I'm going to be careful here because I could get on my own soapbox here. But I think it is um, offensive that churches emphasize money, ask people for money, figure out ways to try to get other revenue streams. Uh, it, it, it's unimaginable to me. And yet that's exactly apparently what's what's going on. You know, it's interesting, Facebook uh, and other social media platforms are so anti-Christ, anti-what we who are Christians believe. I can't imagine, figuratively speaking, get into bed with them. I can't imagine they would have anything to contribute to the church at all. And I just think it's sad. I, I, I don't know that, that churches would participate and and charge people in the church for stuff that they ought to be giving for free. You know, um, if you're listening to this program, you're a radio listener and you've heard every other Christian radio program um, is constantly selling things, constantly asking for money, telling you things like, well, we got matching donor programs now so your gift can be doubled at this very important time. Uh, and and that, that I just can't believe that that we who claim to follow Jesus by faith, we who believe and teach others that they should trust him, I can't believe that we won't do that. I just can't believe what we've done to it. I think Jesus would, would turn over money changers' tables in the church, and, and I'm talking about in today's church and in um, the media, um, just to, to charge for things that we should be delighted to give away for free. Now, the skeptic is say, yeah, but Pastor Ron, airtime costs money. And it does. It's very expensive. Uh, we're fortunate in San Antonio. It's not as expensive as it is in other places, but it's very expensive in major cities. But I think if you really believe God wants you to be on the air, if that's a ministry he's called you to, then I think it's about time that we begin to trust him. So whether it's Facebook, Kirby, or asking people for money, or coming up with with schemes to sell things. Um, um, just count me out. I'm not interested in it at all. Unlike every other church, I need money. It costs, but uh, you know my bank is a pretty good bank, the Bank of Jesus, and He provides what we need. Let's go to line one. We've got our first call day. Efren on from San Antonio. Efren, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron, uh, thank you for your ministry. I really appreciate it. I, I work in town. I actually live in Austin, but I listen to your ministry all the time, and, and I love the way you uh, teach the gospel. So uh, may God continue to bless your ministry. Oh, thank you. Bless your heart. Pastor Ron, I have wanted to confirm some learning 
as I'm working in Matthew, something um, spoke to my heart, and I just want to confirm my learning. In a passage in Matthew, he talks about, leave there your gift at the altar, and the way that I um, understand it and the way that, that God spoken to me about it is this idea of the things that we have inside of us that are, are, are maybe evil or sinful, more specifically, right? And so when we give those things up, we open up God to, to, to bless us and to work out those issues that we have in our life. And so we have to give up something there in the altar, which uh, oftentimes, Pastor Ron, is, is where our deceitful heart takes us. And so I just mm-hmm. wanted to confirm that I understand that uh, passage correctly and that I'm going the right direction. Um, I, I'm currently working on my marriage, as a lot of Christian men are, and I think that sometimes forgiveness may fall into that place, that thing that we leave at the altar. And so I just want to make sure I'm on the right track. Pastor Ron, keep up the good work. I'll hang up. Thank you. Thank you, Efren. I appreciate it very, very much. Um, You know, if we we could all learn, if we all would learn, if we all would learn what Efren is is learning as as the Spirit leads him, um, believe me, there'd be a lot more answered prayers. And Jesus says, if somebody has something against you or you have something against somebody else, I think it works interchangeably, then leave your gift at the altar. That's Jesus saying, look, I don't want your gifts. Your gift is tainted by sin. Your gift is tainted by unforgiveness. Your your gift is tainted by anger. He says, no, go settle things with your adversary so you can do that. Then you come back, you can present your gift before the Lord, and you can understand that it's received. This is more important uh, as a lesson for us as Christians to learn than I'm able to adequately communicate. Um, you know, we think that that, well, if somebody did something to me, then that's okay for me to hold on to unforgiveness. And, and then we'll, we'll ask God all the time to forgive us, or we'll ask God all the time for things in prayer. And the, the, the result is that, that unless we can come to God with a pure heart, uh, that doesn't mean we have to be perfect, but we've got to recognize when we're not, we've got to say, God, please forgive me. And, and ever in just this one issue, forgiveness, um, um, you talked about working on your marriage. Can you imagine explaining to Jesus why you're holding something against your wife or, or her against you when Jesus said you're no longer two but one? When you committed to serve him with your whole heart, we committed to walk together. How can two walk together unless they agree to do so? Um, this is a lesson that if we would learn. Now, we've got to be humble. Um, if not, Jesus will humble us, but but, but it, it takes a great deal of humility and self-awareness. Paul says, search our hearts daily to see whether or not we're in the faith. You've got to do that every day because you want, if you're going to pray, you want to be here, sure that God can hear your prayers and answer them. And he can't do it if your unforgiveness or if your, your, your complaint against your adversary, whoever he or she might be, um, is so loud that, that God can't hear your prayers. This is something that we've really got to focus on. And again, those are words that Jesus uh, himself said, and we've got to be really, really careful that we're able to hear those those things. You know, Ephraim, let me take this one step further since you mentioned your, your marriage. Um, as you may, if you've been listening to the program, uh, have heard, Paul and I, we, we have over the years traveled a lot and done marriage conferences. 
And and I've done some of those marriage conferences with other pastors and their wives. And when I say um, to, 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 to a group of pastors, you simply cannot argue with your wife. You can't do it. You're, you're Christ's representative. You're his ambassador in the home. And if you argue with her, how are you going to explain that to Jesus? And they always say, well, everybody argues. We're humans, but, but we can't be okay with that. What we've got to understand is that we're going to stand before Jesus. The first question, every idle word, we're going to give account for. Uh, it was the first question on today's program. If, in fact, we're going to give account of those words, how do we explain to Jesus that, that I misrepresented him? You see, it's not her flesh that God's going to deal with. It's my flesh he's going to deal with. And so what we got to do is understand that if I'm arguing, if I'm misrepresenting him, if I'm holding unforgiveness, then there's nothing that I can ask God for that he can say yes to because I've got all of this junk in the way. So you understand it perfectly, Ephraim. Thank you very, very much for the opportunity to talk about it. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here is an anonymous question, and it's a simple one. Can Christians be racists? Um, I'm not going to judge anybody's soul here, anonymous, but I am going to say this. For a real Christian to also be a racist, I'm not being naive here, I know there are identifying Christians who are racists, but every Christian, every professing Christian who holds under prejudice, hatred toward somebody because they're different, uh, anybody that expects to be treated differently, whether you're, um, um, no matter what race or nationality you come from, if you are prejudiced, then you're spitting in Jesus' face while he's hanging on the cross. That's what the Jews did to him. That's what you're doing to him. I want you to think about that for a moment. You're spitting in his face. Nobody's holding quick story. When Paul and I met um, 51 plus years ago, um, interracial dating was a lot different than it is now. I mean a lot different. And, And we had people say things and do things to us all the time. And, you know, I've told the story. We fell in love in an instant. I mean, the first time she opened the door, we were both crazy in love. And we knew we were going to be together forever. And no matter how many people tried to break us up, uh, I came home and and, and shared with my parents that I I've met the girl. And when they found out that she was black, uh, my dad disowned me. My dad forbid the rest of my family to have any contact with me until as long as I was in this relationship. I mean, it cost us a lot to be in love. And I had Christians, people that said they were Christians, who told me that I was in sin because I was in a mixed marriage. The reality is there's a lot of people who claim to be saved, who don't really know anything at all about Jesus. Now, are they going to heaven? That's between them and God. But I can say this. We need to stop in this world. The division, the racial division in this country is greater than it's ever been. Isn't it interesting that the more liberal our administrations become, the more 
racial hatred and division there is. Now we've got one whole side of the country demanding that we apologize for being white if, you, if in fact we're white. We got that same side of the country, white people who who are blind to the racial prejudice and abuse that has been at the forefront of this country since it was formed. We still think in terms of race when in fact the only thing we should think about is saved and unsaved. So Anonymous, if you are a Christian and you are a racist, then you need to explain what makes you think you're saved. Again, I'm not condemning you. I'm not judging you. And, and you, you, you asked the question. This probably isn't personal from your perspective, but anybody who says they're a Christian and they have hatred, animosity, prejudice for or towards other people, groups, then I'd like them to explain to me what makes you think you're saved. That's just not the love of God. No love, there's no spirit. Jesus said, if you don't have the spirit of God, then you don't have me. If you don't have Jesus, of course, by definition, you're not saved. So I hope that answers your question. And I want to be as clear as I possibly can be. William says, can I have your thoughts on this? I think God is judging America. Uh, William, God's not judging America. Um, God's blessing is certainly being removed from America. Um, uh, but but God's not judging us. The world, um, and certainly the world of, of prophecy from heaven's perspective, doesn't f- focus on the United States of America. We have a tendency to think that we're in the middle of everything. We're the greatest nation on the face of the earth. So God is judging America. That's not true. We're judging ourselves. We're judging ourselves. You know, there was many, many, many decades, hundreds of years that the people of Israel judge themselves, all the while the prophets are warning them about a judgment that's coming from God. And they turned a blind ear, a deaf ear rather, to to uh, the, the prophet's message, even killing the prophets, because he didn't like the message, and judged themselves and finally got to a place where it was so bad where God judged him. God sent first the Assyrians, then God sent the, the Babylonians. Uh, that was just the way it was. Uh, and, and they were judged. Well, in the United States of America, uh, we have chased God out of every facet of our lives. Um, the church is being persecuted for the very first time just for holding biblical beliefs. The same biblical beliefs that, that have been true for 2,000 years of church history. And now to say what the Bible says is is hate speech. We have an entire nation, world in fact, that's summing their nose at God's ideas, commandments regarding purity and holiness and sexuality. God says, hey, wait a minute, I made sexuality. I gave it to you for a reason. I made it pleasurable because I love you. And now you're thumbing your nose at me. And yeah, God is going to judge everybody. But but the reason he's judging America 
or not he's not judging America yet, but the reason he's going to judge America is because we have completely rejected Jesus Christ. We've turned our back on this wonderful gift, and we want nothing to do with him. So, um, also, we've abdicated our responsibility to protect and and promote Israel's place in the world. And and uh, I've said many times on this program that I believe that is the real source of God's blessing in this country. I mean, think about it. We're we're less than three hundred years old as a nation. Uh, for uh, much of our three hundred years, we have been the most powerful, the wealthiest nation on the face of the earth. Um, that doesn't happen historically. It takes time to build up an empire. And people say, well, well, why did it happen? I think it's because God created this country, allowed this country to be formed. Because we would be the ones that would pave the way for Israel to regather in their homeland. So you see, the world doesn't revolve around the United States. The world revolves around Israel and God's people. And we forfeited that position for about the last 16 years, 18 years, um, while still giving lip service to Israeli support. We've minimized their land holdings. We've strong-armed them to negotiate away parts of the land that really belonged to God that he gave to Israel. For a long time, we were faithful to promote Israel. 1948, without the United States, there would be no regathering of Israel into their homeland. And for a while, we did well. God blessed us. But now we've just sort of trashed those blessings. We've not been grateful for them. And we've turned our back on Israel in large part because we've turned our back on God. So, William, those are my thoughts. Here's an anonymous question. The Bible doesn't say anything about abortion, so why is it wrong? Well, anonymous, obviously the Bible says a lot about abortion. Abortion is murder. And because abortion is murder... And, and the Bible says, thou shalt not murder. When it says, thou shalt not kill, in some of the translations, that, that's a word that means murder. You, you can't take an innocent life. Who's more innocent than a life that hasn't even been given the opportunity to live? So that's why abortion is wrong. It's murder. We're formed in our mother's womb by the hand of God. How can we destroy that? It makes no sense at all. And what makes even less sense is that you would say the Bible doesn't say anything about abortion. It does not say thou shalt not have an abortion. What it says is thou shalt not murder, and that's wrong. So, Anonymous, I hope that makes sense to you. Let's go to Jimmy on line one. Jimmy, we got about four minutes. Thanks for calling. You're welcome. Hey, you know, somebody tell me, because I always talk about you, or I say, uh, you know, I always like compliment you. A friend of mine tells me that I put a lot of faith in you. And I said, no, I don't. I know he's a man, but I tell you one thing, he preaches the whole gospel from from Genesis to Revelation, and I've learned a lot. Thank, Thank you for that, Jimmy. 
there's, there's, all, there's some, some churches that don't want to preach the whole gospel. So. <laughs> you think? Yeah, there's... <laughs> Yeah, and and Jimmy, obviously we know each other, and 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 people say that. Well, well but but you, you know you know me well enough to know that I don't expect anybody to to believe what I say. I, I tell people to check me out if I'm saying something that is contrary to what the Bible teaches. Then then if you love me, you'll tell me about it. Uh, I hope my approach is a humble approach and. And um, um, I understand this dynamic. When the word's being taught and people's lives are changing, that's a really good thing. So thank you for for uh, standing by me, Jimmy. Well, I stand by Jesus. And he yep. stands by you. Uh, <laughs> that he does. Anything else? No, that's cool, man. Thanks, Jimmy. God bless you. I didn't, I didn't mean to talk to you that man, that's okay. I, I <laughs> Thank you, man. Right. God bless. Okay, how much time have I got? Just two minutes? Let me see. Uh, here's what I can do in two minutes. This is from Edward. He says, I'm struggling with why God would want Biden to be president. I know God put him in office, but why? Um, Edward, uh, I don't think you understand Romans uh, when uh, he talks about submitting government, all government comes from God. God didn't want Biden to be president. He knew, obviously, that he was going to be president. In the same way, he didn't want Trump to be president. Um, the, the, the idea in Romans is that God gives the office, and we're to submit to the office for our own good. It's not like God is, is looking over issues and picking candidates. Uh, when Trump was in, we, we had phone calls on this show all the time. People would say, well, Trump is God's chosen man, and and, and say no, he no, he wasn't. And people say, well, 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 well. When Trump was in, in, in because he won, God put him in there. No, he didn't. God knew he would win, but God has no connection to the individual. If you want to think about it logically, then you have to say, well, if your line of reasoning is right, then God put Adolf Hitler, and God voted for Adolf Hitler. Or, or God voted for Nebuchadnezzar, or God voted for um, uh, Caesar Nero, some really weird people. There he's talking about the office, the structure of government, and not the individual. So God's not a Republican. God's not a Democrat. God didn't suddenly say, you know what, I was for Trump four years ago, but boy, I'm mad at him now. This, this election, I'm, I'm for Biden. That's not what happened at all. Um, I want to know why Biden's president too, but but the honest thing is God's indifferent to the people, except that he loves them, and we Christians need to remember that. Hey, thank you for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Calvary.